You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Ammon, of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second, Chileab, of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith, and the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ithriam of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul your father, to his brothers, and to his friends, and I have not given you into the hand of David, and yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what Yahweh has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word, because he feared him. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face, unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michal for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her, all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you, Now then, bring it about, for Yahweh has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with twenty men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go, and will gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. 
But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab. Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away, so that he is gone? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you, and to know you're going out and you're coming in, and to know all that you are doing. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach, so that he died, for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before Yahweh, for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab, and upon all his father's house, and may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge, or who is leprous, or who holds a spindle, or who falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai his brother killed Abner, because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes, and put on sackcloth, and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice, and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me, and more also, if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. Yahweh repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and this is episode 753, Thursday, November 9th, 2023. And that was 2 Samuel chapter 3. Let's talk about 2 Samuel chapter 3. So Abner, if you'll remember, has this tension with David. Who knows why? Who knows where it comes from? Maybe he's just a bristly person. Maybe he's just an abrasive guy generally, and they don't get along. It's a personality conflict, or maybe this is how Abner is with everybody. 
Abner, it says, is leading the conflict on the side of Ishbosheth. The house of Saul is at war with the house of David. And that's the way to think of it. There are people who line up on either side, but this isn't really their fight, first and foremost. This is a fight between the house of Saul with Ishbosheth, king over Israel, and the house of David, where David is king over just the tribe of Judah. It says in verse 1, David grew stronger and stronger. The house of Saul became weaker and weaker. So that is to say that it wasn't one and done, boom, roasted. It was maybe over the course of the whole two years that Ishbosheth was king over Israel. Gradually, David was getting into a stronger and stronger position. Ishbosheth, the house of Saul, was getting into a weaker and weaker position. And what this probably indicates is public opinion. This is probably approval and disapproval rating type stuff. But it's hard to say. It's hard to say whether it's that first because it wasn't going anywhere and the winds were racking up for David and the losses were racking up for Ishbosheth, or what? Was it general conduct? Was it the way of relating more broadly, not just wins and losses on a battlefield, but also the way that these two men related? You get a little snapshot of how each man relates in asymmetrical interpersonal situations. First, you get Ishbosheth confronting Abner about his father's concubine. Abner is confronted by Ishbosheth for having supposedly, allegedly gone into the concubine, having slept with the concubine, one of the concubines of Saul, loses his patience and snaps and basically says, Am I a dog's head? Am I some worthless fellow that you would make this an issue between you and me? He doesn't deny that he did it, interestingly, but he objects that he is being confronted about this. He's being charged with a fault concerning a woman, and that's all she is to Abner. But then somehow Ishbosheth is maybe trying to get something over. He's trying to change the dynamic between him and Abner. Remember, Abner is the one who single-handedly anointed Ishbosheth. By contrast, the elders, the men of Judah came together at Hebron when they heard that David and his men and their households had come to Hebron. They'd come back from exile in Ziklag, in Philistia. The men of Judah, the elders of Judah come together and they together anoint and make David king, but it's just Abner on the other side. Abner is the one who made Ishbosheth a king. All he had going for him was that he was Saul's son. But here he does the opposite. He says, Oh, you're going to confront me about that? About a woman? No, I'm going to see to it that David becomes king over all Israel. It's a big blow up. And it says Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And I think that was the case before this. And also, it's worth noting, I pick up on it, surely they picked up on it, that Ishbosheth being afraid of Abner 
bears a lot of resemblance to how Saul related to the people around him and the people generally. Saul feared the people, and that turned into him acting maliciously, passive-aggressive, but also active-aggressive, and becoming a terror. Here, perhaps, Ishbosheth is showing early signs of that tendency, and Abner is not having it. Maybe that's apparent to Abner, or maybe it's more apparent to us because we have some distance and we have the text telling us what the key details are. I don't know. But either way, this is a conflict and this is a turning point. Abner saying, that's it. I'm out. And I'm taking all Israel with me is to say Abner was the one holding this whole thing together by his personality, by his force of will. A very forceful guy, very blunt, very direct, and he's going to go over to David's side. But then let's go up a little bit. Before that happens, it says, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, verse 6, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. He was making himself strong. What does that mean? What is being described here? I would say this has to do with the little Game of Thrones type jockeying for position relative other people, including but not limited to Ishbosheth. That's what happens. That's what's told to us generally right before the business with the concubine, the confrontation over the concubine. And maybe Abner did this thing with regards to Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah. Maybe he did. But what preceded that? He was making himself strong in the house of Saul. This solidifies my impression that Abner is acting as something like a regent. Ishbosheth is a figurehead. He is the guy who has the bloodline from the previous king. And so we'll put him on the throne, but he's a figurehead. He doesn't actually really wield the power. Abner wields the power. And Ishbosheth, he's old enough. He's 40 years old when he comes to the throne. He's 42 when his reign ends. Ishbosheth clearly is responding to Abner making himself strong in the house of Saul. And he's going to take him down a few pegs. Or he thinks. He thinks he's going to, but he's not as good at playing this game as Abner is, and he doesn't have the cards. It's a bluff, and Abner calls his bluff. So then what? Verse 12, after the conflict, Abner sends messengers to David on his behalf and basically says, you know what? Let's just call it. Make your covenant with me. My hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. David responds, good, I will make a covenant with you. But on one condition, verse 13, one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face. You're not going to see me. We're not going to meet. It would be a waste of time until you first, unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. And so what happens? And by the way, remember, if You've been following along each episode as we read through these things. Michal, after Saul initially drove David away, or David fled because Saul was going to send men to kill him early in the morning, Michal warned David to flee. You need to run or else 
My father's going to have you killed by the morning time. What did Saul do after that? What do we hear? What do we read that Saul did? Almost as an afterthought down the road a ways. We don't know exactly when he did it. Maybe it wasn't immediately, but it was at least between the time when David fled and the time when Nabal had died and Abigail, Nabal's widow, became a free agent, so to speak. She was back on the market. It says that David took both Abigail and Ahinoam to be his wives. So he had two wives. And oh, by the way, we passed over it, but we'll get back to it. He's apparently got more wives for himself since then. But when it first says that he took Abigail and Ahinoam of Jezreel to be his two wives, it also, just in passing, just ever so briefly, mentions that Saul had given Michal, who had just previously to David's flight been given to David to be his wife, Saul gave Michal to someone else. And if you'll remember, if you were listening to that episode when we covered it, I talked through, what is this describing? And I asked, oh, is this just, you know, oh, you know, get her out of my sight, watch over her, protect her. Is it that sort of a thing? Is it like a guardianship? Is it like she's under house arrest? What what is this? And I told you, right? I told you at the time, no, this is similar to when Samson gets upset with his first wife, the Philistine woman, and leaves after she gives away the riddle. He leaves, he storms off after paying the gambling debt. And when he comes back again, after he's cooled down, when he comes back again, he's going to be with his wife. Her father says, no, you can't see her. You can't go in there. I've given her to your best man. I thought you hated her. So apparently this was common enough. This was an unremarkable, casual thing that the father would just say, okay, I'm going to give my daughter to somebody else now. Nothing said of divorce, although maybe there was a certificate of divorce. It's just, oh, you know what? You were with this man, daughter. Now you're with this man instead. I'm taking you back and I'm giving you to this other man to be his woman, which is to say to be his wife. He will now be your husband. When David tells Abner that his one condition for a covenant between them is that Abner will bring Michal to David, a very uncomfortable, a whole lot of this is uncomfortable, of course, but a very uncomfortable, and if it happened in our day, it would be very scandalous thing happens. Ishbosheth, it says, sent and took Michal from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. But wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michal, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Oh, by the way, in case you forgot, right? It wasn't like a conventional, like, oh, I'm going to go to the ATM and pull out some money, or I think I'm going to cash in some stocks and bonds and I'll cut you a check. No, no, (laughs) no. Saul, as part of his trying to entrap David, hoping that the Philistines would kill David in the process, said that the bridal price, because David was just this lowly commoner, 
guy who didn't have a lot of money, didn't have a lot of wealth, the bridal price would be a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And David said, okay, that's fair. I can do that. I'll be right back. And he did it, you know. Again, I recognize fully that this is uncomfortable. This is weird, but it is what it is. And maybe we're soft or maybe they were really messed up or maybe both. Maybe, (laughs) Maybe we're just messed up in different ways today than they were back then. I think that's probably the case. But in any event, it's Ishbosheth. David sends messengers to Ishbosheth after having responded to the messengers from Abner. Why? I don't know. It's not entirely obvious to me. But then a more curious thing is that Ishbosheth does what David asks. Ishbosheth, verse 15, sent and took her, that is Michal, from her husband. Now we have the confirmation of what I was speculating before with merit from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. But verse 16, her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. Apparently, he was not ashamed to cry about this. Apparently, this was a big deal to him. Maybe he wasn't the manliest of men, or maybe he was responding the way that a husband who actually loves his wife is going to respond in a moment like that. But then whose wife is she? (laughs) Whose wife is Michal? Is she David's wife anymore? Is she Paltiel's wife now? Whose wife is she? It's messed up, right? It is. This is messed up. This is not how it's supposed to be, but then it is what it is. And we're just told, yeah, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. So you have the context. It's weird stuff, I admit. It says, her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, go, return. And he returned. To that point, apparently, nobody had told him, get out of here. Maybe everybody was feeling that this is not quite right, or this is <laughs> this is super weird, right? Even back then, people were probably thinking, man, what do, you, what do you say? What do you do? Is this good? Is this appropriate? On the one hand, she was married to David, and we do love David, and he is the Lord's anointed. On the other hand, is she now David's wife? Is she now Paltiel's wife? Whose wife is she? It doesn't really matter to Abner. He says, go, return. And Paltiel returns. And then we're right back to the political situation. You have Abner conferring with the elders of Israel, just like he was talking with David about doing, just like he told Ishbosheth he was going to do. Apparently, Ishbosheth is completely impotent in this regard. And so maybe this is just out in the open. And it's like, hey, this is what is happening. And you can't stop me. In any event, like I said, we passed over something. And I want to get back to this. What's curious is, starting in verse 2, from verse 2 to verse 5, sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn, so he had no children before this, his firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His second, Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Maaka, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. Wait, where did she come from? When did he, 
<laughs> David, David, wait, 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 wait. who is Maaka? When, when did you get married to her? It doesn't say, but it is apparently a thing that David took another wife or he didn't. That's a possibility. More on Absalom later, but just note, Absalom is going to be a big deal. He's going to be a really big problem for David and all Israel later on. Right now, he's just a baby. He's been born, but he's also not just son to King David of Judah. He's son to the daughter of Talmai. So he's the grandson of the king of Geshur on his mother's side. So he's got royalty on both sides. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. So there's another woman. And the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. So there's another woman. The sixth, Ithraim of Eglah, David's wife. Now wait, 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 wait. The sixth being of Eglah, David's wife. Is that to say that Shephatiah, son of Abital, was a bastard? Is that to say that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, was a bastard? Is that to say that Absalom was a bastard? I don't think so. I don't think that that necessarily follows, although it is curious that Ahinoam, we've been told, is a wife of David elsewhere. She's not described as a wife in this paragraph, but she is. Abigail, we've been told elsewhere, is one of David's wives, but we're not told in this paragraph. It seems to me as though all of these are probably David's wives or concubines, one or the other, concubinage being a little different. We won't get into that in this episode, but we will at some point. But then that is to say, we have six sons by six different women born to David, king over Judah, while he's in Hebron. We have six sons being born to David over the course of, it would seem, those two years. So that is to say, if Ishbosheth is only king over Israel for two years, David has sons by six different women at least, and I'm sure it's probably at most two, but then he might have had daughters by other women as well. But at this point, it's pretty apparent that he's got something of a harem. David also wants Michal back, who was his first wife, and that would make seven, and it's a mess. But then the whole country is a mess. The situation between David and Abner is a mess. The situation between Abner and Ishbosheth is a mess. The situation between Judah and the rest of the tribes is a mess. It's all a mess. It's people. People are a mess here. Skip on down, though. Speaking of, from verse 26 to 30, we're told about how Joab, and then later his brother is added in as well, Abishai and Joab, killed Abner. Why? Because Abner had killed their brother in the battle of Gibeon. Is this a just killing? Is this appropriate? Well, let's think about it. There was a battle and deaths on both sides at Gibeon. So it was a war. And as a matter of fact, 2 Samuel chapter 3 starts off that there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. So at least two years for Ishbosheth's reign, it seems to me, in war on the battlefield, that's a different set of rules. And that's always been regarded as the case. That's a different set of rules 
compared to when somebody from the other side comes under a flag of truce. And in particular, if you know, if you're Joab, and you know that Abner and David have been in talks, you know that this is contrary to the will of your king. So this is not you're defending yourself. This is not on a battlefield. You guys encounter each other and you kill him because that's what happens in battles. That's what happens in war. No, no, this is murder. And it's regarded as murder. And what's interesting is in the last section here, David mourns Abner and, oh, by the way, he curses the murderers of Abner. But it says that when David refused to eat, he was lamenting, he was weeping, leading the people in weeping and mourning for Abner. When David refused to eat, verse 36, all the people took notice of it and it pleased them as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So, verse 37, all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner the son of Ner. What is that to say? Whatever plausible excuse might have been the official narrative based on the optics of Joab and Abishai avenging their brother, it would be a question in people's minds. There would be a scandal about this too. There's all kinds of scandals in 2 Samuel chapter 3. But one of the scandals and one of the worst is the murder of Joab, who was a very prominent man in Israel. If he's able to get all Israel to follow after either either Ishbosheth on the one hand, or if he says to everybody, hey, let's all go over to David, he's able to get them all to go over to David. This guy's a very influential, very authoritative person. For him to be murdered, if it's not entirely obvious and clear that David had nothing to do with it, there there are also reasons why you might suppose that David had Abner killed, like vengeance, like David taunting Abner. Hey, you see this? You see this water jug that was sitting by Saul's head? You see this spear? Whose spear is this? Whose water jug is this? Abner, you should probably die for having not kept the watch over the Lord's anointed. Somebody could have just snuck right in and killed him. Some people were probably wondering, is David the kind of guy that he would be willing to make it look like an accident or make it look like a crime of passion on the part of Joab and Abishai. And then he mourns like this. And then the people say, no, no, he's not the kind of guy. Not when he mourns Abner the way he's mourning Abner. This is genuine. This is real. He is really upset about this. Why? Because it's murder. It's one thing to fight and to kill on the battlefield or in a war. It's quite another thing when under a flag of truce, someone is brutally killed. That's murder on the one hand. On the other hand, it may be upsetting. It may be harsh and brutal and unpleasant, but it is what it is. War is war. Murder is murder. But then I I want to posit that everything that is happening in this chapter altogether presented side by side, the business with the birth of six sons by six different women in the course of two years while David is king over Judah in Hebron, David sending for Michal. 
Abner being confronted by Ishbosheth after having made himself strong in the house of Saul, after Ishbosheth having confronted him about sleeping with one of his deceased father's concubines, then the murder of Abner. All of this happening side by side in close proximity in the narrative. It feels a bit like a foreshadowing of what will later happen with Bathsheba. Not to get into that, we'll save that for when it comes up in the narrative timeline. But I do wonder, right? I do wonder if this sort of a thing left some marks on the soul and the character of David to where he was especially susceptible, he was especially vulnerable, still responsible, still guilty, make no mistake. But I wonder if so much desensitization to this kind of melodrama and this kind of back and forth and casual, and now she's going to be given to this man. Nope, now we're taking her back and her husband who's crying, following her the whole way has to be told, go, go home. You're done. Did that muddy the waters for David in terms of what he believed was permissible when he saw Bathsheba on a rooftop? Maybe. Again, not an excuse, but maybe an explanation, maybe a partial explanation for what happened there, what happened later. For now, what we know, and we can boil this down because it's just presented to us very bluntly in the text, what we know is that David is king. His position is getting stronger and stronger. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, is on the way out. We're on the verge of a major turning point in the politics of ancient Israel and Judah. Also, as far as family dynamics go, David has somehow added four women to his household from where we were previously when we were told that he had two wives. He had two wives, he had two wives, he had two wives. He had two wives. Before that, he had one wife, he had Michal. Now he's sent for Michal to return her to himself. And so now he'll have seven. He had one and the one was taken away. And so he got two. And then the two were taken captive. And then, this is speculative. I'm not saying that this is what definitely happened. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But the two being taken captive along with the other households of all the other men, the two being taken captive by the Amalekites, coupled with the ascension of David to the throne of Judah. And all of a sudden, you're going to have a neighboring king in a neighboring kingdom offering the hand of his daughter in marriage as well. You're going to have other prominent men of Judah wanting to strengthen ties or establish a alliance with the house of David. I wonder if David losing Michal, or being given to another man, David losing Abigail and Ahinoam, even briefly to captivity by the Amalekites, he doesn't add four, right? He had one, lost her, took two. He had two, lost them, regained them, yes, but then he took four, four more. So if all of the above are taken, does he go and get 14 wives? Every time he loses wives, he goes and gets double the amount that he had before. I don't know. I don't know what's going through his head, but maybe, just maybe, there was more to it than Abigail and Ahinoam being taken captive by the Amalekites. And maybe there was more to it. Apparently, he's obviously still thinking about Michal, 
She was his wife, and in his mind, she still is his wife. But then he doesn't describe her that way. When he tells Abner what he requires of him, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter. He describes Michal as Saul's daughter. But then, wait a second, when he sends messengers to Ishbosheth, he says, give me my wife, my wife, present tense, possessive. Give me my wife. But wait, whose wife is she? In David's mind, she is still his wife. If she has been given to some other man, that other man is an adulterer, not her husband. She's still married to David. But then maybe that's the reason, maybe that's half the reason Abner tells the man, go, return. Because whatever you think is going to happen here, Paltiel, if you follow her all the way, to Hebron and to David, whatever you think is going to happen, that maybe you're going to convince us through tears to let her go back home with you because now she's your wife, you probably have another thing coming once you get to Hebron. See, here's the thing you've got to keep in mind. In this whole business with Saul and with David, just because the king tells the subjects do this, don't do that, you must, you must not. That doesn't mean that they have to or that they always should. So, for instance, Saul gives Michal to Paltiel. Just like when David has the messenger, who's the son of the sojourner, the Amalekite, when he comes bringing the news of the death of Saul and Jonathan in battle on Mount Gilboa, just like David says, ooh, you say you killed Saul, you didn't fear to stretch out your hand and destroy the Lord's anointed? Put him to death. Even if Saul told the man to do it, in David's mind, this is very black and white. That's regicide. That's an offense against God that you would kill his anointed. For that matter, too, there are other instances in the biblical text, 1 Samuel, for instance, where we see disobedience to the ruler, to the ruling authority, because what the ruling authority is saying they want a person to do conflicts with what God says is his righteous standard. When that disobedience occurs, there is typically a commendation, as in the person who did the disobeying is commended for having obeyed God when they couldn't obey God and man at the same time. In the case of Paltiel, he should have been thinking to himself, That's not just. That's against the law of God. That's adultery. She's still married to David. You're giving me your daughter who is still married to David. Did that thought stop Paltiel from consummating the relationship? It doesn't seem so. Not when he's carrying on emotionally the way that he is, following her, weeping for her. He wasn't waiting for David to be killed by Saul. And maybe that was part of the thinking was, well, you know, it's terrible about David, but if he's going to be dead, then she won't be married to him anymore. It's not the point. That's not the point. It was wrong what Saul commanded Michal and Paltiel to do. They didn't have to obey. They didn't have to follow that. They didn't have to do it, but it would seem that they did. And Paltiel here is understandably, very confused, very conflicted, very brokenhearted. 
but then David too has, I would say, the prior claim. And part of the reason I say that is because I'm looking at Matthew 5.32, where Jesus says, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality brings adultery upon her, and he who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. If Michal was divorced from David by Saul and then married off to Paltiel, David is in the right, according to Jesus, that this is adultery. That's what we read in Matthew 5.32. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, now that doesn't mean that David divorced his wife. So it's not that David caused Michal to commit adultery or that he brought adultery on her, but it is to say that Saul did. Saul brought adultery on his daughter. He who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So that is to say that Paltiel is an adulterer. What's the penalty in the law of Moses from God for adultery, which is either the woman having relations with a man who is not her husband or a man having relations with a woman who is married to another man. The penalty is stoning. It is death. And again, I know as with so much here, you might just get a headache and you might say, wow, this is all so uncomfortable. This is so weird. This is not how we do things at all. And I don't think this is right. I think the Bible's wrong. I think the Bible is unjust and oppressive towards women and the feminists are right. If that's your view, then you are free to hold that view. I don't share that view. We are so messed up in our way of thinking about marriage in our country, in America. There's so much chaos and so much disorder. You have people living together, not getting married ever, live with somebody for several years, get upset with each other, break it off, move out, get with other people, hooking up, breaking it off. By the way, while the incidence of virginity until marriage has decreased dramatically in recent decades among women, the incidence of virginity among men has gone way up. So that is to say, it's actually not... (laughs) that all these men are just hooking up, having one night stands, sleeping with lots of women. No, it's fewer and fewer men who are having relations with more and more women outside of marriage. Fewer and fewer men, the most handsome, most confident, the most successful in business, the most famous, the most charming, the subset, the small minority of men who are exceptionally attractive. Those men have their way with any women who will consent. And in some cases, in the worst cases, consent isn't a barrier. And those men particularly are the objects of scorn, and they should be. And they deserve severe punishment. But the women, right? The women in our context, very often in the mainstream, are what? They're affirmed. Anybody who would object is scolded. The woman is not scolded. In the mainstream, we say she's a free and independent woman. She's a modern woman. Men do it. Yeah. A very small minority of men behave like that. Run the numbers. In this case, in the context of 2 Samuel chapter 3, we're just told this is what happened. This happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. It doesn't mean that it's all happening in a moral vacuum. Murder is murder. Even if God doesn't intervene in that moment, and strike anybody dead. Adultery is adultery, even if God doesn't intervene and say, 
this is wrong. This is wicked. This is bad. Now, I'll throw a wrench in the way that I typically read and talk about marriage. And I've been probably in a lot of people's minds, a controversialist talking about marriage with regards to the question of polygamy in the Old Testament. Polygyny, more specifically. It's not just anybody can have as many spouses as they want, total chaos. No, 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 no. That would be absurd. The men having multiple wives, that's a thing. And it's not all the same, apparently. Not according to God. Not according to God's law. What does Jesus say? in Luke 16, 18. And I wonder if people who've heard me talk about this have had that passage come to mind, some of them, and not saying anything, not writing me, not contacting me and saying, well, what about this passage? I wonder if some people have thought, oh, man, no, you're, you're so wrong. You're so wrong. Luke 16, 18. I'm not going to listen to this guy anymore. What does Jesus say in Luke 16, 18? I'm glad you asked. In the English Standard Version, Jesus says, something very similar to Matthew 5.32. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Ooh, okay, so maybe Jesus is saying it's all the same. Well, not so fast. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another. That's curious. That's curious. Just like Paul putting the word own in Ephesians 5 when he tells the wives to submit to their own husbands, not just wives submit to husbands, you know, share everything in common, but submit to your own husband. You will have one husband. Otherwise, it's adultery. Jesus is very clear about that. That comes through loud and clear, Luke 16, 18, also Matthew 5, 32. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians seven ten. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, Verse 11, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. What's the big problem? You might say, well, it's adultery. Yes, but adultery is not just, are you married at the time or did you get a divorce? As if the divorce lets you off the hook. Maybe Saul did, it doesn't say in First or Second Samuel that I saw. I don't think it's in there. Maybe Saul did say they're divorced. Now she can marry somebody else. Divorced, remarried. Divorced, remarried. You know if that were what God had said was acceptable, that the landscape would look very, very different. You know that. We're going to get divorced for six months, do whatever, and then we'll get remarried again, and then it'll all be okay. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. Jesus says one thing that reads very much the same in the gospel according to Matthew and in the gospel according to Luke, he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. He who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So that is to say, in the eyes of God, the woman getting divorced to marry somebody else, she's still committing adultery. In the eyes of God, she's to remain unmarried. Now, where I think actually David got himself into a very compromised position here isn't where he asserted, essentially, she's still my wife, but that he took her back. But then I don't know. It's a curious thing. It's a head scratcher. What would be better? I think we should all agree. It would be better if Saul had not given Michal to 
Paltiel in the first place, because she was already the wife of David. Saul far and away exceeded the bounds of his authority. He didn't have the authority to do what he was doing. Not as a father, not as a king. He does not have more authority, did not have more authority than the Lord. What would have been better, though, would have been for Saul to have not sought to kill David, his son-in-law, his faithful servant, the anointed of the Lord. What would have been better is if Saul had stepped aside, if, if God's will was that David would become king after Saul, Saul could have just abdicated and given the throne to David. But then that's all coulda, woulda, shoulda. If the world were other than it is, then it would be different than it is. What happened is what happened. And given the circumstances, I'll leave it to God to judge whether David was in the wrong to send for Michal and to say, give me my wife. What we do now in Luke 16, 18, if I pull this up on the literal word app on my phone, the Bible app, the way this reads is everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. If I look at the word translated everyone, I'm told it's an adjective, genitive, all, every. As a pronoun, it could be masculine or feminine, every one. But then the possessive is his, anyone who divorces his wife. So this is referring to men, men who are husbands. In the ESV, it says everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. So it would seem from that reading of the English translation, every husband who divorces his wife so that the husband can marry a different woman is the one committing adultery. That's the way a lot of English translations translate it. Some don't. Some chop up this sentence a little differently and it reads differently. For instance, the American Standard Version, everyone that putteth away his wife and marrieth another, but then that's in comma, everyone that putteth away his wife and marrieth another. What is this? Marries another. Of the man to marry, to take a wife, or of the woman to give oneself in marriage, of both sexes. So it's neutral. It could be either. It could be men. It could be women marrying another. Another, heteros denoting the second of a pair. But then what's curious is, again, Matthew 5.32, I say unto you, whoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, or in the ESV, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, which is to say he divorces his wife, and then she is going to go and get remarried. It's not Adultery if she's not getting remarried and going to be with another man. It seems to me as though there's some question that's legitimate as to how this is rendered in Luke's gospel, because it would be odd. It would be odd that David gets into so much trouble for having taken the wife of Uriah, who was not David's wife before she was Uriah's wife taking the wife of Uriah, he commits adultery. For that matter too, when Abraham and Sarah are traveling through Egypt, Abraham tells Sarah, tell them you're my sister. Otherwise, they'll see that you're beautiful. They will kill me and they will put you into Pharaoh's household. You will be taken for Pharaoh. 
when she says, I'm his sister, he's my brother, they do take her into Pharaoh's household. And then God confronts Pharaoh and says, you're a dead man. Your house is cursed until you give this woman back to her husband because she is not just his half-sister. She is his wife. God doesn't do that, or at least the biblical text does not record him ever doing that with regards to a man taking additional wives. And that's very, very curious. Something has to be pondered out there, I think. But then you might say, all of this, right? All of this is just very weird. It's very weird. And it is, and it's a mess. And it makes you thankful for the simplicity of he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Can't we just keep it simple? Hmm? Do nothing from selfish ambition and vain conceit, right? Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry for the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God requires, that God desires. If those had been the guiding principles throughout this whole story of Saul and David, we wouldn't have this mess that Israel and Judah and David and Ishbosheth and Abner and Michal and the rest are in. We just wouldn't. But then it is what it is. And it's told to us that this is what happened. This is how things went. And then this happened, and then this was said, and then this happened, and then this was done. And then this was said, and then this was said, and then this happened. And you might wonder, well, what's the point of knowing all that? Again, I've said it before, I'll say it again. The value is in understanding better God's character, which does not change. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But also, it's important to God, apparently, for us to understand human nature, to understand how these kinds of messy political situations play out, how people relate to each other. We understand human nature, our own and that of other people, better because this is in the biblical text. We understand better cause and effect relationships so that we can become not just knowledgeable about the trivia, but wise and discerning. And we can know right from wrong. We can know wise from foolish. There's a blessing in that. Even if this is messy stuff, it's complicated. Even if it makes you scratch your head like, what in the world? What is this? But let's skip forward in the Old Testament. Let's go back from the New Testament in the passages we've been looking at that pertain to marriage. And let's factor in Malachi 2.14, biblehub.com conveniently puts this in front of us as we're reading those other passages that I was just referencing in Matthew, in Luke, in 1 Corinthians, Malachi 2.14 in the ESV. But you say, why does he not? Because Yahweh has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. What is this in reference to? What's the larger context? I'm glad you asked. The larger context is Judah in trouble with God the Father for having not been faithful to the covenant. Starting in verse 10, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of Yahweh, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. 
May Yahweh cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to Yahweh of hosts. And this thing, the second thing you do, you cover Yahweh's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because Yahweh was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says Yahweh, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says Yahweh of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You have wearied Yahweh with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? So that's the context, right? That's the context for Malachi. Just before that, Yahweh, the Lord God, Almighty, God, the Father, God over Israel, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was rebuking the priests. But here, he's rebuking more than just the priests. Judah, as a people, as a tribe of Israel, Judah has been faithless. And then verse 17, you have wearied Yahweh with your words. How? How have we? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where's the God of justice? So people will ask in our day these exact kinds of questions, or they will say these exact kinds of things. They'll say, oh, that's fine, right? It's fine. We'll permit it. That's no longer taboo. That was taboo once upon a time, but times have changed. Everybody's doing it. Or when nobody is doing what is good, we'll ask, where is God? Where is the God of justice? As though it's somehow God's fault that justice is not being done. If God doesn't speak and he doesn't intervene in the very moment, the very instant that a man has been faithless to the wife of his youth, putting her away, divorcing her, actually is more to the point here. Divorce is the big deal to God. That's faithlessness, to cast her out. You got tired of her? You got sick of her? You don't love her anymore? She's not interesting to you? You don't want to take care of her anymore, so you put her away. You put her out. That upsets God. And all of your crying on the altar is, for what? Why? Why do you cry? Why Are you weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand? You should have known what would have pleased him. It would have been you following through. You said you would take this woman to be your wife, to provide for her and to protect her. And the faithlessness was that you cast her off. You put her out. Now, again, as with so much else of what we're reading in the Old Testament and the New Testament, a lot of this is very unusual for our sensibilities because divorce now doesn't require any demonstration of wrongdoing on the part of either party. You don't have to give a reason. You can just say, we want a divorce. And the man can initiate it. The woman can initiate it by the stats. The vast majority of divorces are initiated by women, actually, 
which is interesting, particularly if the woman gets divorced and then goes and finds some other man. What would Jesus say? Well, let's look at what he did say. (laughs) He would say if she gets divorced and then marries somebody else, she's committed adultery. Do we say that? Do we agree with Jesus? Do we agree with the Bible? In the majority of cases that I've seen, it's a very difficult thing. If it gets mentioned at all, it's a very difficult thing because people don't want to hear it because it's very upsetting to say, you have sinned in this specific way and you should repent. In the case of David, he didn't put Michal away. He fled. So then in some sense, his saying, give her back, give me my wife back, feels right. It feels appropriate. She didn't stop being his wife. He didn't divorce her. She's still his wife. She's been living in sin with some other man. And yes, her father put her up to it and gave her to the man. And so Saul bared some of the responsibility and it it should be factored in. It really should. In the law of Moses, for instance, if a married woman is said to have been raped and it happens out in the country and nobody is around to hear, it's to be assumed that she was raped and that she didn't just have relations with some man who wasn't her husband and then claim when she was caught, claim when she was found out, she was forced. If she's out in the country, it's to be assumed she called for help, she didn't want this, and she doesn't get punished at all, at all, at all. That would be extraordinarily unjust. And even if the man is like, man, I don't know, the law is the law. She is to be presumed innocent. Now the due process comes in on the other side, and this is where we get all in a tizzy, where if it happened in the middle of the city and there were people around and she could have called for help and nobody heard her calling for help, crying out, help, help, no, stop, then she is not to be believed if she claims that this was rape and that she was forced. But then all of this, again, is very uncomfortable because what then? Then it wasn't rape. Then it was her committing adultery. Why? Did she cease to be her husband's wife when this other man took her, either by force or willingly, and she consented? Did she cease to be the wife of her husband? No. She became an adulteress. And in that case, her sin is a capital offense. It's very serious. We don't take it very seriously. And so we look at this and we say, this is very harsh. Is this very harsh? Or are we the people described at the end of Malachi chapter two? You have wearied Yahweh with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? We're those people. Like what? What do you mean? What are you talking about? You say everyone who does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh. So therefore, also correspondingly, for instance, a woman who divorces her husband and goes and gets married to some other man. Jesus says she's committed adultery. People in our day say, that's fine. For any reason or no reason at all, that's fine. You're good in the sight of God. God loves you. God understands how difficult it was. You know, what's interesting too, what's curious is the resolution for Abigail, for instance, for example, with regards to Nabal, is not that Abigail gets a divorce from Nabal and then she goes and marries David. No, 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 no. God strikes Nabal dead. Nabal dies. Then she can remarry. And that's the way that it works. But in the case of David, there is no such thing. 
What people get distracted by too easily when they read Malachi chapter 2, 10 through 17, I'm convinced, is this faithless to the wife of your youth, possibly being in conjunction with Luke 16, 18, if a man divorces his wife and marries another, they place the special emphasis on his marrying another, not on his having divorced his wife. In the context of Malachi chapter 2, it's clear, it's very clear that the issue here is the divorcing from his wife. And you say, but isn't that what David is doing when he takes these additional wives? Saul gave Michal to another man to be that man's wife, for that man to be her husband. And so David moves on with his life. He gets Abigail and Ahinoam. But wait, 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 wait. He marries both of them simultaneously. How's that? Isn't that that he divorced one and he then married the other? I mean, how <clears throat> how is that possible? Well, the, the biblical text describes them both as his wives because it doesn't work the same. It's not all the same. And again, if you're looking at Luke 16, 18, Jesus very specifically says there, as he does in Matthew 5, 32, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 10, as Malachi says in 2, 14, the Operative word here, the hinge pin, the common word is divorce. Faithfulness, adultery, divorce, all of these being very important to God and showing up Old Testament and New Testament. It's not just an Old Testament thing that passed away. And now we don't worry about it. We don't pay any attention. Now we just do whatever seems right to us. And we say, whoever we want to say is in the right, is in the right. And we condemn whoever we want to condemn, whoever we hate, whoever we like less. What's interesting is if you go to divorcemag.com, and I find these kinds of links helpful when I'm writing a book on marriage, which I am. I just got back to writing my book on marriage this week with PTO. I've written the first chapter since February didn't realize how long I had neglected the book, but nine months, it turns out, is how long I had neglected the book. But divorce has to be factored in to why people are not, young people are not getting married. Let's talk about divorce. Jesus talks about divorce. The prophets talk about divorce. Moses talks about divorce. Let's talk about U.S. divorce statistics and divorce rates from 2000 to 2017 in a piece published by Divorce Magazine, August of 2019. So right before the pandemic. In 2000, the year 2000, excluding data for California, Indiana, Louisiana, and Oklahoma. Why? I don't know why. There were 944,000 divorces and annulments at a rate of approximately four per 1,000 total population. Not four per thousand married people, but just four per thousand total population. That rate stayed steady into 2001. Again, 940,000 in that year, 955,000 in 2002, 927,000 in 2003, 879,000 in 2004, 847,000 the next year, 872,000 the next year, 856,000 the next year, so on and so forth. It's stayed fairly steady. The number of divorces and annulments 
excluding always California. I don't know why California is always excluded both from divorce statistics nationwide and also from abortion statistics nationwide. They don't like to report on that for some reason in California. Maybe they're not proud of it or maybe they're like, yeah, you don't need to know because it's no big deal. But it's also, yeah, a a really big deal, even if you're like, it's no big deal. And yes, we are judging you, California, but it's roughly between three quarters of a million and a million divorces per year from 2000 to 2017. That is to say, there were 15,565,440 divorces during those 17 years, according to Divorce Magazine. That's an average of 864,746 divorces per year. The rate per 1,000 total population ranged from three to four, and it came steadily down as the 17 years progressed. I don't know what it is now, but it's not the point. It has been casual. It's been a significant number of American marriages ending in divorce in the first two decades and not even the first two full, one full decade and 70% of the next, 15 and a half million divorces. And how many of those went on to remarriage? And how many of those went on to, well, the man just dates around and has long-term girlfriends. The woman just dates around and has long-term boyfriends, dates several guys over the course of the next several years. This is a big deal to God. Divorce is a big deal to God. There was a vow that was made. There was a covenant that was made. It's not just a social contract, and it's not just a tradition, and it's not just whatever the government will let you do. And this is the trouble with saying, ah, the law can be whatever it is. The law can't legislate morality, but it does. What is permitted, what is prohibited is a teacher. And it does communicate to a lot of people, most people, what is considered to be moral. What is legal is considered by many people to be morally neutral. And then you just make a decision and you do what seems best to you. Now, on that point, if we carry that kind of thinking into 2 Samuel chapter 3, then we say in the absence of a explicit order not to do these things, David is operating within the bounds of morality. If you feel uncomfortable with it, but it wasn't illegal, then it was, strictly speaking, at least morally neutral. If not necessarily wise, if not necessarily morally good, it was morally neutral. It was permissible. Was it beneficial? Maybe not. Was it permissible? Yes. But don't miss that this emphasis, Old Testament and New Testament on divorce, when Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, thou shalt not commit adultery, or you've heard that it was said, if you would divorce your wife, if a man divorces his wife, he must give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, but I say to you, when Paul talks about it, and he deals with questions of if a believing wife has an unbelieving husband, she should stay with him. If he is content for her to remain with him, she should remain married to her unbelieving husband. If a man is a believer and he has an unbelieving wife, if she's content to stay with him, then he should remain married to her and not put her away, not divorce her. That was a question. Paul wasn't just randomly spitting out totally absurd scenarios. He was answering questions he was getting from 
the church, probably because somebody locally in that church had been asked and they talked amongst themselves and they couldn't quite decide, is that acceptable? Is that a good idea? Would I be holier? Would I be better off to divorce and marry somebody who is a believer? But then that's also of a piece with why Paul says in in Ephesians 5, (laughs) wives submit to your own husband. So imagine a scenario, and I've talked about this from the standpoint of a woman being tempted to submit to the pastor's wife's husband, for instance, for example, instead of her own husband. Paul says elsewhere, if a woman has a question, she should stay silent in the church. And when she gets home, she'd She should ask her own husband. She should ask her own husband. And you say, well, but what if he doesn't know, right? Maybe he doesn't know the answer to that question. And so what if he doesn't? Has that ever stopped a woman? Riddle me this. Has that ever stopped a woman from when something is broken around the house? Like let's say an appliance, or let's say there's a leaky faucet, or let's say that the house needs a fresh coat of paint, or let's say that the car is making weird noises when they drive it around. Has that ever stopped a woman from asking her husband, what's wrong with this? Hey, can you take a look at this? Can you get this fixed? No. No, but (laughs) let's modify that scenario. Let's suppose that a man and his wife live in some suburban outlying area of an American city, your typical American city, your typical American suburb, your typical American husband and wife. And let's suppose that the vehicle's making some weird noises. And let's suppose further that the man is not exactly a mechanic. The husband, I should say. Let's suppose that the neighbor across the street or a block over is a mechanic. We know intuitively, it's common sense, that if the woman, if the wife goes across the street or one block over, herself and takes the vehicle over there and asks this man who is the mechanic in the neighborhood, can you take a look at our vehicle, our car? It's making some weird noises. You know intuitively that there's something less than ideal about that. And also for that matter, if she sticks around and hangs out while he checks out the vehicle, particularly if he's around her age, if he's reasonably good looking, she's reasonably good looking, We know intuitively and anecdotally that that is probably not going to a good place as far as her marital health and as far as his moral health, whether he's married or unmarried. That's probably not going to a good place. Now, here's an alternative scenario. Let's suppose that a wife goes to the grocery store and the vehicle starts making a weird noise. There's a weird squeaking noise or chirping noise or grinding noise or whatever. She comes back and she says to her husband, honey, the car started making a weird noise. Could you take a look at it? Or or maybe you could go talk with so-and-so, fill in the blank, name of local mechanic in the neighborhood. Maybe she leads with, can you take a look at this? Do you know why it might be making that noise? I'm a little worried about it. She says that to him. And then what? He says, yeah, I'll take a look at it. And what is he probably going to do? Speaking as a man, knowing men, He's probably going to go out with the keys, fire it up, give it a listen, see if there are any weird lights on the dashboard. And then he's going to do the little head scratch thing. And he might check out YouTube and he might 
do a Google search and see if there are some forms. He might search for an answer and he might see if there's something obvious, something easy he could do. Why? Because his wife asked him. And so he's going to grow in his capacity to work on his own vehicle. It's a point of pride for him. It's a matter of honor, really. This is his vehicle. And before he even takes it to somebody else, he at least wants to have looked it over so he doesn't look dumb. He doesn't want to look stupid when he asks somebody who is actually a mechanic. Well, it works the exact same way with regards to men in positions of authority in other spheres. This is true in the civil sphere. Say, for instance, just hypothetically, suppose I'm working from home and there's somebody suspicious in the neighborhood. My wife, A, calls 911 right away before calling to me and saying, hey, do you see that guy over there? Yeah, I just saw him doing such and such. He's looking into windows. He looks really shady. What do you think? Or B, skips right to the part where she calls 911. Now, maybe if there's a violent crime in the process of being committed as we speak, maybe she just calls right away, but she probably calls for me and asks me to check it out because maybe I'm going to intervene. And then while I'm intervening myself personally, she's calling 911 because who knows, maybe the guy's way bigger than I am. Maybe he's got a weapon. Maybe he's got friends. She's going to call for backup. But scenario B, if she's just calling the police right away, immediately, that's like a vote of no confidence in me as a husband. That's a bad day if you're a man, if you're a husband. Or let's take it out of the civil sphere a little bit. We're not talking about law enforcement. We're not talking about mechanics. Let's talk about the spiritual. And let's talk about the ecclesial authority. If my wife has something that's really bothering her with regards to her spiritual condition or the Bible, she's reading things and she's really wondering What does this mean? What does that mean? If my wife says nothing about it to me, she doesn't ask me, she doesn't tell me, she goes immediately to the pastor and she says, hey, pastor, or maybe she's on a first name basis. And so she calls him by his first name and she says, hey, I was reading this the other day. And what do you think? What do you think about this? What does this mean? You can say, oh, well, that's not really all that important, right? That's not that big of a deal, but isn't it the equivalent of our vehicle starting to make a noise or somebody suspicious in the neighborhood. She goes directly to the pastor and now she's asking him and maybe he is answering all of her questions and helping her with all of her problems. And what? If I find out, then I feel like, wow, you didn't trust that you could bring that to me. Ouch. But then see, this is how it happens. And this is part of why we're so out of sorts because so many decades of rationalizing and accommodating and compromising with the modern sensibility with regards to gender and sexuality and marriage, we have reconstituted all of our expectations along the lines of what God calls out at the end of Malachi chapter two. You have wearied Yahweh with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh and he delights in them, or by asking, where's the God of justice? So we reconstitute all of our institutions, all of our traditions, all of our laws, all of our mores to accommodate people casually divorcing and getting remarried, treating marriage as though it's some 
trivial thing, which is to say we treat other people, the people on the other end of the marriage, very dismissively, as very disposable, highly disposable. We treat our word as highly disposable. Saul, when he takes Michal, his daughter, and gives her to another man, for one, is treating David with contempt. You know it, I know it, everybody in the situation knew it. For another thing, he was treating his daughter with contempt. See, she's just a pawn. She's just a chess piece for him to move whither and wherever he pleases. He knows she loves him, David that is. Saul knows that Michal loves David. He doesn't care. In fact, maybe this is a way of getting back at her for having tipped David off that the assassins were on their way. Saul also treats Paltiel, Michal's new husband, with contempt, encouraging what he ought never to have encouraged, even maybe ordering what he never should have ordered, setting Paltiel up for heartbreak, possibly even death, if David survives and comes back and sees that Michal is with another man. But as important as all of that, equally important for the purposes of our context and our thinking about these things, our being wise about these things, Saul treats the institution of marriage, the covenant of marriage, with contempt, as highly disposable. Your word, yeah, whatever. A sacred covenant that God himself instituted, as Malachi says, with a portion of the spirit between them, yeah, whatever. I find it more useful to mess with that, just to show that I can, just to show that I'm really in charge. See this? Watch this. Watch what I do here. I do whatever I want. Why? Because I'm king. This is why the kingdom was taken away from Saul. And when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, starts to show even just a little bit of the same sideways, acting out, trying to deal with, cut down to size, somebody he feels threatened by, Abner's not having it. But then let's take a step back here and recognize we've now talked at length about just 2 Samuel chapter 3. What's so curious, perhaps the most stark contrast between the way this flows in 2 Samuel chapter 3 compared to how we talk about men and masculinity and how men relate in marriage, notice it's one paragraph dedicated to to the sons born to David at Hebron by six different women in the course of, in the span of probably two years, thereabouts. There's another paragraph dedicated to, in part, and it's not just this, but it's also this, David saying, give me my wife back. Give me my wife, Michal. That dynamic. That gets a paragraph. There's a paragraph that has to do with in part, but not in whole, Abner being confronted about the alleged relations with Rizpah, daughter of Aiah, Saul's former concubine. But then what's all mixed up with these references to marriage or relations one way or the other? Politics, the way that the men in these scenarios are relating to each other. What's all bound up in this? And what actually gets more weight, what is attended to at greater length and in greater detail in 2 Samuel chapter 3 is how does this pertain to who is in authority 
and who will be in authority over Judah, over Israel, over other people. There's more attention that is paid to the dynamic between David and Abner, between Joab and Abner, between David and Joab, between Abner and Ishbosheth, between David and Ishbosheth. There's not quite as much, but there's about as much. That is to say, going back to some of what I've been talking about in previous episodes where I've been reading for you and talking about Aaron Wren's blog posts of late dealing with American evangelicalism and how American evangelical teaching on masculinity and maleness and what it means to be a good godly man is falling short and it's leaving much to be desired and it's a very narrow attention to marriage and fatherhood and really domesticity. Yes, you have marriage all throughout 2 Samuel chapter 3. You definitely have David being a father. You have the fact that Saul was the father of Ishbosheth. You have brotherhood, the fact that Joab and Asahel were brothers. Joab and Abishai both were brothers to Asahel, and so they avenged their brother by committing murder. But it's not all just domestic, like within a household, like a man's place is in the home. Isn't that curious? The vision that's cast by American evangelicalism far too often is that the man's place is in the home, and that's where he needs to concentrate, if not all, the vast majority of his attentions, his efforts. Understand that. Understand your wife. Understand your children. Well, good. Yeah, absolutely. Understand your wife. Do. Live with your wife in an understanding way. And yes, absolutely. Understand your children. Don't provoke your children to wrath, fathers. But if a man, a godly man, has his whole life revolve around only his wife and only his children, if that's the ideal, is this all just a cautionary tale? Like this should not have been David's focus at all. He shouldn't have been attending to these other things. Surely not. For that matter, if we're only looking for food for thought with regards to marriage and fatherhood for men, then we don't understand how these other spheres, these other types of relationships, these other spheres of responsibility are actually also of God, instituted by God, and to be taken seriously and to be approached in an intentional way. It's not either or. Now you might say, and some have said or suggested strongly, that the whole problem later on when Absalom gets to be a really big thorn in David's side, leading a rebellion against him, you might say, David didn't pay enough attention to his children. See, there's proof. He should have spent more time. He should have taken more care as a father. Or you might say, see, none of this would have happened if David had just not had so many wives and had his attentions spread so thin, and then he went after Uriah's wife. That was the final straw. That's what it's all about. That's what this is in here for. Ah, But there's more, right? There's more to it than that. Recognize that David is God's anointed, not just to be married and to have children, but he's the anointed because he's going to be king over Israel. As king, he has certain responsibilities. He has certain duties to attend to. If he never attends to those duties, he never takes those responsibilities seriously, he's negligent. But that's not the kind of person that God was looking at the inner man of the heart with regards to and wanting to have as king. When David fought Goliath, in the Valley of Ella, that didn't all revolve around the opposite sex. That didn't all revolve around 
fatherhood. In fact, he didn't have a wife at that point and he didn't have any children. So you might say, ah, see, that's okay, right? Only single men with no children should be doing those kinds of things and engaged in those kinds of things. Where's that written? See, maybe some of these attitudes have been transposed from outside of the biblical text because you have people who want to find a spiritualized excuse for ducking out of the really messy, scary, dangerous parts of this narrative. This is some dangerous stuff. This is a dangerous situation to be in if you're David. Ishbosheth and David, there's a contrast. One guy's only there because Abner, who is a forceful personality, put him there and keeps him there until he's upset, until he's angry. Does that resonate with us? Does that resonate with men? Do men need to know what to do in those kinds of scenarios or how to not get into those kinds of scenarios? How to not be Ishbosheth? Hey, the only reason I'm in this position in the first place is because some guy who's really forceful wanted me to be a figurehead and rubber stamp everything so that he could actually wield power. How do I not get into that kind of a situation? Hmm? Or take David's spot. Here's David, very active, really getting after it. Getting credit. The people love everything that he does. It says when he's mourning Abner, for instance, the people approve. It pleased them, verse 36, all the people took notice of it and it pleased them as everything that the king did pleased all the people. He did what was honorable in the sight of all. Was that his intention from the get-go? I don't think in a mercenary way, but I think he was sensitive to it because that was part of his responsibility as king. That was part of his responsibility as king to attend to those sorts of things. I think it's very similar to his sending gifts to the elders of the tribe of Judah after the victory over the Amalekites. Here, here you go. Here are some spoils. See that God has given his enemies into our hand. We thought you might appreciate this. You, you might benefit from this. Those gifts help to pave the way for a good outcome when David and his men come to Hebron. Is it an either or? Either he does something like that or he trusts to God? No. And that we have so much literature, so much superficial God talk that would suggest the most honorable, most wise, most godly thing, most God-honoring thing is to just always let go and let God. It doesn't match what we find here. Now you might say, Ah, but what about <clears throat> what about God not having either condoned or condemned in the narrative? Not everything that's presented here is prescriptive. A lot of this is just descriptive. Again, I would go back to why is it being described? Is it all just a cautionary tale? If so, don't be surprised when the people who take it most seriously are just a nervous wreck. They're nervous all the time, anxious all the time, fearful all the time that they're going to make a mistake because they've been told nothing is beneficial except wait on the Lord. That's not what David did. That's not what God wanted him to do. For that matter, just wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord is not what Malachi is telling Judah. How have you wearied him, that is Yahweh, with your words? You say things like everyone who does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh and he delights in them. Or by asking, where's the God of justice? Those who do what is evil, does God delight in them? No, no, he doesn't. Some people say that sort of stupid thing and they're wrong, but other people get very cynical, they get very frustrated and they won't do anything about it. And they say, 
Where is the God of justice? Rather than doing justice, Micah 6.8, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Why are you asking, where is the God of justice? Does David live in constant fear of making a decision, doing anything, because he's going to leave everything to God? No, no. There's a narrow range, a narrow band, say, for instance, with Saul, because Saul is the Lord's anointed. He cannot, in good conscience, move against Saul because Saul is the Lord's anointed. But he doesn't just sit around waiting and doing nothing. He's active. So if you're in David's scenario, I don't think everything in 2 Samuel 3, for instance, is just descriptive. I think this is also, in some measure, and you have to really meditate on it, and you have to really dig in, roll up your sleeves, study, use scripture to interpret scripture, look at the context within the chapter, but also look at the larger context of the whole counsel of God. You have to look for, okay, what is prescriptive here? What is exemplary? What is wise? What is honorable? What is upstanding? Do I see here living examples, stories, almost like parables, but I believe these really are things that happened. Not to say that the parables didn't happen, but some people think they were just made up stories to illustrate points. Do we look for how these are lived out proofs of the goodness of the law of God, the law of Moses, for instance, or how these are examples of what we're told to do and to not do and to be like by Jesus in the gospels, or when the epistles follow after the gospel accounts and the churches are being attended to on certain questions of life and practice. We lose quite a lot if we say, there's none of that here. It's all just descriptive. If you say it's all just descriptive and the only benefit we would get is theological and the only anthropological benefit we would get is to just see how depraved man is. Ah, that's all there is. It's just man is just depraved. No, no. I, I don't believe that. I don't agree with you. We see the depravity of man, but it's not careful to say that's all we see anthropologically. He has shown you, O man, what is good. Micah 6.8 doesn't say, he has shown you, O man, how depraved you are and that you'll never do anything good. You're incapable of doing justice. You're incapable of loving mercy. You're incapable of walking humbly with your God. No, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what does God require of you. Do we see David doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly with his God? I would say we do. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I really do have to run. There were other things I wanted to talk about today with the Republican debates in Miami last night. Those will have to wait. Or you'll have to subscribe for 99 cents a month. And then you can listen to those as they're available. Lord willing, I'll record and publish an episode about that and more tomorrow. But for now, I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.